0: Hello and welcome to a new edition of the Probe Ministries podcast. I'm your host today, Paul Rutherford. I'm a research associate with Probe, and we are a ministry to equip believers to think biblically, to help believers be freed from cultural captivity, and to build into confident ambassadors for Christ. And we are glad that you're listening today, we got uh, another episode talking about the story of the cosmos, a book by Dan Ray and Dr. Paul Gould. And in studio today is Dan Ray, a friend of the ministry. Dan, glad you're here.
1: Glad to be here, Paul. Thank you.
0: We have done a previous episode with you. You may have heard that, but if you hadn't, we're glad you're tuning in now. But Dan, just a quick bio on you. You are a man, I like to say a jack of many trades, many, I, I, many
1: talents. I've been around a little you've, bit. You've yeah, done I've, a lot of different things. I have.
0: You, you've taught school, taught middle school, and you do fun voices <laughs> I like the fun voices <laughs> i tried Keep, it's middle school, <laughs> keeps the class entertained and it keeps the the thirteen year olds engaged right. Mr Ray, do that, to, that again, do that again exactly uh, yeah uh you call it, you're a lay astronomer, but you do have a um, not but and you have a M.A. in apologetics from Houston Baptist University, Mm -hmm. right? Your thesis explored contemporary relevance of C.S. Lewis cosmological imagination in the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also have your own podcast, right? What's that called?
1: Yes, it is uh, Good Heavens, a podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dan on Patreon patreon.com slash good heavens and then on Podbean, good heavens the human side of astronomy you can also find good heavens the human side of astronomy on itunes for free
0: excellent and you have to say good heavens with, a, with an with an english accent right good heavens
1: a podcast about the universe with wayne and dan
0: <laughs> that makes it sound more like lewis
1: that's where wayne and i got the idea it was just me being silly voices good heavens <laughs> we were going to call it all that gas but we just decided not to <laughs> Too many directions that could go. (laughs) (laughs) So we went with good heavens. seriously that was that was on the table
0: no that's really funny yeah i really like it if you're going to talk about the heavens gas has lots what it did we were scientific science
1: yeah but then friends were like well you want to go public with that and
0: (laughs) that is too good
1: well we thought two old guys you know just gassing about the hot air why not yeah there's so so many many things you could have done so
0: many directions to go with that right but today on this episode Again, one reason I enjoy having you around and in studio, especially is uh, just how much fun we get to have together. But I wanted to talk with you a little bit about uh, your new book that came out this year, Mm -hmm. The Story of the Cosmos. In a previous episode, we talked about the really interesting story and kind of the context out of which the book came. Mm -hmm. And and that was interesting. If you haven't heard that, you should go back to a previous episode and listen to that, because that's a really interesting story. It's especially fascinating to hear you tell it, Dan, because it was really... This book is your brainchild. It's not just about you. You didn't write it solely. It's definitely a a team effort that happened with Dr. Gould, especially, helping kind of lead that out. But it started with you and...
1: The crazy idea I had of... Bringing a Hubble Space Telescope scientist together with a C.S. Lewis scholar. Thank you. I have to put credit where credit is due. This was, I never intended that event to turn into a book. That was Paul Gould's idea. Okay,
0: so it started as an event. It started as clear. an event. It started yeah. as an event. Let's get these two yeah uh, professors together and yeah. talk about both of very different things all at once in one meet in one yeah. sitting. Yeah, to show you. But I was there. It was fascinating. Yeah, you came. Yeah, you no. were there. Yeah,
1: but Paul. It was Paul's idea. I said, "Hey, Dan, let's do a book." And I said, "Well, it was it was all I could do to ask these people to come. Uh, asking them to do a book would just be a little bit beyond my ability or desire." But uh, Paul said, "No, we should do it." I actually didn't want to do the book. It just seemed like too much work Interesting, and, and I didn't know who Paul was and I didn't, and you know, people say you should write a book, you should write a book. And I was just kind of like, Paul was mm-hmm, really nice yep. about it, but I didn't think we were actually going to do anything with that. <laughs> uh, so he's like, no, think about it. and We could make a proposal and I could shop it around. And so Paul became my literary agent. He literally took a chance with me because I'm not published. Uh, I don't have credentialed PhD status at a university. Okay. Paul is published. He is a credentialed Christian philosopher with publications and professionalism. And here, here is a guy who just walks onto the seminary and wants it to have a place to hold an event. And he goes, do you want to write a book? And I was like, okay. I didn't have any manuscript. I didn't have any publishing experience. And, and then all of a sudden, yeah. here I am.
0: What a great guy. Yeah. I haven't met him personally. He doesn't oh, know me, but everything, I have friends like you who do know him. He yeah. just, he's, no, he's so, top he's top so notch. great. Yeah. And the work that he's doing is great professional. And then with the Two Tasks Institute, yes. just so many good things with Doctor Gould.
1: No, he's uh, he's uh, written a couple of books recently: "Stand Firm" and uh, "Cultural Apologetics." Um, cultural, that one, yeah, yeah, the cultural Culture, apologetics. Right. Love that one. It's uh, very well written, very accessible. And uh, he was writing that when I first met him, when we we did okay. the Hubble Narnia event. He yeah. was working on cultural apologetics, so it just so happened to coincide the the event that I thought about just so happened to coincide with the vision that he had in the book Cultural Apologetics. And so he's just like, oh, let's do this. Yeah. And so that's how it happened, really. So it was Paul's generosity and, you know, ultimately God's gift and grace that that brought us together.
0: Yeah. So great. So today on this episode is really kind of going to give you the football and let you run because there's tons of stuff in here. There's been multiple contributions by Mm -hmm. multiple different authors. You're very familiar with the with the content, very familiar with, with what the point of the book is, which is that the cosmos, when we look to the heavens, when we look to creation in, mm. in general, it reveals to us the creator. And there's this very interesting story about him and who he is and who we are, and this very interesting relationship, this kind of dance this, that, that we're in. There's a very human story going on Right. when we apply what is today known as the scientific disciplines to look at, to understand the cosmos, to understand our reality. Mm-hmm. But even through applying the scientific disciplines, there's a, there's a human story going. On. And I'm just trying to tee you up. I'm no, no, I'm slaughtering
1: yeah, it here. No, but. that's good. I I like T ball. I can hit home runs easily. <laughs> me too. With the ball right there in front of me. But um no, it's true. The the story of the cosmos is first and foremost a story. All the essays could stand alone and you can read each individually without having to read the beginning of the book. But it does tell a story, as we said in the last episode. You if you go to Barnes and Noble or you order a book on Amazon, you will Find a plethora of very talented, scientific-minded people, scientists in their field, who can also communicate and write books. They can translate their science to a wider audience. But when they do that, they always have to use metaphors and similes and language devices in order to communicate their science to a wider audience. They're constantly making analogies that would... Enable people to understand what is being discovered or considered in modern astronomical and cosmological theories. So, first and foremost, any kind of knowledge must be communicated through story. This is how Jesus communicates. The parables, you know, the metaphors and the similes from nature that Jesus uses in describing the kingdom. Yes, seeds. Jesus
0: uses metaphor, seeds, points to creation water, all Water, wine, yes.
1: seeds, birds, sky, you know. Agricultural. Agricultural yes, things great. that people tangibly dealt with every day. And the irony of our time, Paul, is that God's, the greatest created thing that God has given us in terms of inanimate creation is the heavens. I mean, it's the first created thing mentioned in the Bible in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, but by and large, our incarnate participation and engagement with the heavens, we don't navigate by them anymore. We don't tell time by them anymore. But we we used to, we used to, they used to be our, our libraries, everything that our cell phone is now more or less is what the heavens were uh, millennia ago. Our cell phone, what a great contrast. Well, yeah, we're looking down instead of up because when we used to look up, the the constellations, we would they were repositories of our stories. They were libraries that told us time. Uh, they were clocks. Uh, they were uh, indicators. They were signs, exactly what the Bible says. They were signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And, you know, one of the most well-known star clusters in all of civilization is the Pleiades, I mean, that goes from the Book of Job, probably the oldest book in the Bible, perhaps, all the way up until the the front piece on the Subaru auto manufacturer, on, the, on Subaru cars, uh, all the way from an 8th century poet, Hesiod mentions the Pleiades, and Aratus, the 3rd century, I think 3rd century, uh, Paul quotes Aratus in, in Acts 17, the, the, the Pleiades are mentioned from the Book of Job through through Greek poetry, uh, through 19th century Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, I mentioned a, a, a slice of poetry from Tennyson that mentions the Pleiades. Um, and so you have this continuum of, of these stars and their influence on our culture. But, but most of us today, we'd look up and we wouldn't even know where to look for the Pleiades. We wouldn't, we would, well, what, so what? What relevance does this little basket of stars have for me? What does it matter to me? Uh, there's no value in it. And so what we've lost, largely in part, is not only our incarnate engagement with it, not only our inability to identify these things, but we've lost the value of meditating on creation from a biblical perspective. We're not talking about, you know, a naturalistic pantheism or an animated sort of new age mythology. We're talking about a meditation that as a Christian, you look at creation and you think of Jesus, you think of Christ, you think of, as David thought, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. So this meditation on the aesthetic qualities of creation is virtually lost on us. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy a beautiful sunset or, oh, isn't that a pretty tree or it's a nice flower. But the aesthetic considerations, the the meditation on beauty in the universe, uh, not just in the universe but in creation, is lost upon us. It it just doesn't seem to have Mm. any practical value. I don't have time to look at flowers. Right. I don't have time to look at stars. I can't even see them from my house. Yeah. And so...
0: And I think that admission is its own... Not to interrupt you here, but no, it, it, it's its own sad, I think, disclosure on what we value as a culture. Right. It says a lot about us if we look up to the stars and say, oh, what good is that? It, oh, look, my pizza's about to be delivered. Mm. You, you know, it, it says that we value the here and the now and the material. Right.
1: And you think about how that impacts our culture and our conversations, Paul. I mean, we we had lunch. We were kind of joking about it. But there's this mentality between the the a microwave culture. Yes. Oh my gosh! I have to wait 90 seconds for my food.
0: Okay. Hurry up! Hurry, hurry up, up! Hurry up! Quick, hurry up!
1: Quick, 30 quick. seconds! I want to
0: eat it's now! Too That's long. too long.
1: Or there's an agricultural attitude about yes food where Very you different. you plant a seed and it but it but you said it either you know you you don't plant a seed and then yell at it, right? Well, you, you said that. I said, did I say yeah, that? You. Okay, you don't plant a seed and yell at it and expect it to. Grow fruit yeah grow corn grow I just put the seed in the ground why don't I have apples you and you can't yell at your microwave either because it's not 90 seconds is not going to go by any faster if you go why does it take 90 seconds
0: to cook pizza just as absurd yes
1: and so but you think about how does that mentality the, the modern mechanistic practical here and now gotta have it now gotta have it how does that impact evangelism when you're talking to a skeptic You have to plant the seed and then you yell at him. Why aren't you a Christian? Mm. I just gave you the gospel, right? Uh, There's no patience. There's Mm. no patient cultivation of listening. You know, in an agrarian society, you knew how patience and time were required in order for something to to bear fruit. And I think, you know, if if we're honest in our own lives, Jesus waits a long time for for us to... (laughs) to come around to the truth of understanding who he is. He's very patient with us. Mm. Why are we so impatient with ourselves or with other people? You know, when we talk to atheists and skeptics a lot, uh, we, we tend to get into that microwave culture where we're yelling at our seeds and yelling at our microwave ovens and yelling at our tools because they don't instantly do for us what we want them to do.
0: And we're so silly for it. Right.
1: And so the the whole point of that is that a meditative, contemplative Approach to understanding scripture, understanding creation from a biblical perspective is that, you know, watching the stars night after night, they subtly change places. So what? But you see that there's a patient cultivation that Mm -hmm. develops within you as you observe the cosmos, as you watch trees, as you look at flowers, as you see insects and ants. You know, Proverbs says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Mm -hmm. Look at nature. Jesus says, consider the birds of the air, consider the lilies of the field, consider the sky, you know, the times and the seasons. Um, And there are so many nature metaphors and references to creation throughout scripture, old and new. Yes. We just, it's almost like a heresy, Paul, where we just, like I said earlier, in the beginning, God created the earth and that's it. And we don't even really pay attention to the earth because... Science has taken it over or maybe some new age mysticism or some in kind of in political environmentalism. We don't even think about the creation anymore. We've just had a garage sale mm-hmm. and we've given it all over to the physical garage sciences. And, and we don't even think about it. And it's like thinking about the two natures of Jesus. You know, if you think of only his divine nature, you're gonna you're gonna run into heresy. If you think of only his human nature, you're gonna cultivate heresy. I mean, that was the Nicene Council and the Arianism, is a is a focus on one nature of Jesus at the expense of the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we are with with um, creation and Scripture. We focus on Scripture at the ne- at neglecting creation. I see. There's no. Um, there's no contemplative, aesthetic value, and understanding who God is through nature, because that just seems speculative, why our scripture is much more concrete. But yes. but throughout Orthodox Christian theology, we've had these two kinds of revelation, general revelation. General and specific. And special. But the general, as you know, what does the general say in, in Romans 1, of course, that, that what God has created reveals his invisible attributes. And we're hardly familiar at all anymore as a church, by and large, I'm not saying every Christian, but 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 by and large, we're not familiar with nature nope. like the natural philosophers who began the sciences
0: right. and that is a previous podcast episode go check that one out on general mm. revelation awesome yeah i'm really enjoying our conversation dan but i, I want to steer us back to talking about your book story of The Coffee yeah I'm we're sorry. kind of we're talking just, around we're... it you and i can both get excited about these topics that we're yeah both,
1: sorry you in particular are
0: passionate <laughs> about it and i have a value for it and i can resonate with that but i'm going to propose a structure. I will pick one chapter from your book that, Absolutely. I, that I thought resonated with me. Okay. And then I'll kick it to you, and you can talk about one chapter that you thought you just want to talk about. And I'm raise sure, your
1: eyebrow when I get off topic. I'm
0: sure you <laughs> love all of them. <laughs> but the chapter that I particularly enjoyed is authored by Melissa Kane Travis. Okay. The yeah, chapter just... on the resonance of intelligence mm-hmm. and nature mm-hmm. and the Imago Dei. Yes. So, personal story was just talking with a dear friend of mine, brother, just yesterday about the Imago Dei. What is the Imago Dei? What is the image of God? What does it mean that God stamped his image on us? Mm. What is it? We were talking, I'm going on somewhat of a tangent. We were talking about the nature of sanctification. What does it mean to become more holy, more like God? What does it mean about my identity and my worth? Where's my worth found? Because it can't be found in my actions. It can't be found in what I do because... I'm depraved and wicked and sinful and I'll Mm. go in the wrong direction. But at the same time, I can't totally own that either because that's not true that I'm worthless, right? Mm -hmm. Because for some reason, God did choose to redeem me and God did send his son to the, to the cross. We have talked about the Imago Dei and that was much more about identity and sanctification and where's our value and where's our worth. But it is, it is a good question more widely, more broadly asked about what does it mean? And if I understand her chapter it has a lot to do with intelligence. Yes. A lot yes. to do with mind. Right. And not that that's where she... That's kind of the starting point of, mm-hmm. of, of the chapter. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was... And her main point is that, as I understand it, is that because we can understand the universe, that reflects God's glory. That's part of the image mm-hmm. of God stamped on us. Mm-hmm. But that also is itself a witness to God himself, effecti- yes. effectively speaking, to a designer, to a right. grand designer, to a to one who created everything.
1: Yes. So she has... If you think of a triangle, which is easy, uh, there are three points, and they intersect as angles of a triangle do. Melissa talks about the what she calls the cosmic resonance, how these things fit together, the material world, mathematics, and the mind of man. There's a really—on yes. naturalism, there's a really weird resonance there that cannot be explained naturalistically. Why does the material world— fits so well within mathematical descriptions and how is it that the human mind can conceptualize not only the material world, but the abstract world of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this in the earlier yes. podcast. Mathematics yeah. seems to be, I would say, the consensus of mathematical reasoning, even uh, theoretical physicist Roger Penrose concedes this, that mathematics is is an abstract reality. Apart from us, rocks didn't make it. We don't seem to have made it up because it fits hand in glove with the way in which we describe relationships in the physical world, including the cosmos. And so Melissa's argument is basically that the matter, mathematics, and our minds all come from the mind of a maker. They are products of intelligence, a stamp, a hallmark of the creator's intelligence, and that we were created to recognize and resonate with the mind of of the maker by recognizing what he has done and that again last podcast we talked a little bit about mathematics but we we want to make sure Mm -hmm. that we're not denigrating mathematics because Melissa's chapter is a celebration of mathematics but in a a way that does not make mathematics causally proper or divinizes mathematics into a causal agent Mm -hmm. mathematics can't cause anything but they do Uncannily describe A great deal of relationships in the universe yes. that, that mathematics Simply as, as effective as it is As as precise as it is uh, Finally there is no naturalistic Theory for why it is It's just like well we just take it for granted It's useful but but Stop asking those metaphysical questions About where it came from yes. that's just bothersome right. Pay no attention to the guy behind the grand right. curtain
0: And that's one thing I think perhaps that Allowed me to resonate with this Chapter in particular because you know, as uh, our, our listener can't see, but the cover art is... Maybe you could speak to the cover art, but it, yeah. it's it's astronomical. It's a, it's cosmological. It's mm-hmm. it's looking at the heavens at the cosmos. And that's a, a strong focus of the book. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. It was all well-intended to be that way. Mm-hmm. But myself, I'm not... I wouldn't even call myself a lay astronomer. I do like philosophy. Mm. I'm, I'm much more into the humanity side and into the abstract things rather than the, than the perceived things. And so chapters like Melissa's mm. were interesting to me because she's kind of tracing... The scientist, the ma- mathematicians' perspective of explaining mm-hmm. how it is that man's mind is capable of understanding and creating laws that describe these natural phenomena that we are perceiving, mm-hmm. and then she traces them historically from from the ancients to the Greeks through mm-hmm. the medieval period into the modern period, mm-hmm. and, and even to, to contemporary today, mm-hmm. mathematicians who are describing that today. Yeah. And and so I'm, I'm bringing this up for you, listener, who's driving around doing whatever you're doing, listening to this podcast because this book, while admittedly has a lot to do with the heavens, a lot to do with astronomy and looking up, uh, does so much more. There are things in this book that interest people, even if you know nothing. If you can name no star in the sky, you will still get something out of this book.
1: Absolutely, Paul. This is not just a science book about astronomy. This is not a typical apologetics work. We don't really... I mean, yes, there are... Chapters that say, "Well, this suggests God exists, or this suggests that God exists, or we we present these things in such a way that I think would appeal to." I had an atheist, I was on an atheist YouTube interview a couple of days ago, and uh, the gentleman actually legitimately said to his audience, "I think you will enjoy reading this book," and that's the way we designed it.
0: That's so great to
1: be to encourage a Christian who isn't familiar with any of this. You do not have to have, as Paul said one inkling of a knowledge of a star name. You don't have to know anything about a telescope or space telescopes or space satellites or planets or anything. You can enjoy this book as it is without it bringing any prior knowledge into the into it. If you have prior knowledge in this subject, this is still going to encourage you. And if you're an atheist and you want a hey, here's some thoughtful Christian thinking on the state of the cosmos, but it's not just science as you alluded to. We have philosophy, we have history, we have literature, we have art and music and the imagination and we bring together what one reviewer had recently said in a a review that she had written Sandra Gann uh, I think she 's at dallas theological seminary i 'm not sure where she works i 'm sorry sandra. Uh, she wrote a beautiful review that that's you know this is really what she she got it she She got our emphasis that we were taking left brain and right brain and and merging the two hemispheres into a whole brain you know the the logic <laughs> and the creativity, the science and the fantasy, the astrophysics and the fantasy, and we wove it together in such a way that that we hope readers will catch onto this and go look, look how easily and fluid These two kinds of often disparate disciplines and lines of thinking can actually converge very seamlessly. Like you said, this is a compendium of essays, and you can read each individually, but the whole thing flows together. We've woven it together, and in fact, that's what my chapter tries to do. It primes your mind to think imaginatively about the rest of the book. As we were talking off mic, I leave some breadcrumbs in my chapter, so it's not just... (laughs) In chapter two, Melissa talks about mathematics. In chapter three, Brother Guy talks about meteorites. Uh, it's, it's not like that. That's kind of boring. So what I did was told a story about the stories in the book. But I don't outrightly say chapter three says this, chapter three. No. I drop little Easter eggs.
0: Yeah, and the way you described it is, is um, well, it's interesting to me because as I was getting ready to have our conversation today, I, w- I was thinking to myself how I was asking myself the question, how would I describe this book? And I was thinking about you. How how would I describe for you who are listening, who haven't read this book, don't know anything about this book, don't know Dan himself, what is it like? And I found myself arriving at a place of answering that question like this. The the book is, as you say, a compendium of essays. It's a collection of essays Mm -hmm. about all kinds of different things from philosophy to math to astronomy, all kinds of things. And each of those can be read on their own. But as I was reading through the book, as I, I was finding myself, you know, one essay after another, one chapter after another, finding myself realizing, Wow, the God of the universe made this amazing, amazing place, mm-hmm. and we get to enjoy it. How great yeah. is this? Yeah. And so it's almost like there, there's almost wordplay in your title for the book, the story of the cosmos. Oh, as yeah. you read essays about the cosmos, you you are there's kind of this meta experience where, like, yeah. as you describe, the heavens are telling the story me the listener individually is reading this story and i'm having the same experience reading mm-hmm. through the book that you're describing as putting out yeah and is, there's there's really interesting kind of a meta narrative to the right book in we're not
1: just saying hey go out and stare at stars we're not just saying hey no uh go out and learn the diameters of, of stars we're not just saying hey go quantify the amount of gas and plasma in our sun we're, we're, this is not a a straightforward science book, and we're not demanding that you go out and be astronomers or scientists from it. We are, as you say, you're initially struck with the idea of the singular story. Um, and you open the chapter and you see many stories, but then the meta narrative, as you say, is woven mm-hmm. throughout. It is a it is a thread, and and that's what my intro chapter tries to do. I tie it all up together. I tie the whole book together in my intro essay. And then after you're done with mine, then you go through and your brain is primed to recognize connections that maybe even I didn't consider, but you, the reader go, okay, I can see how that fits because there's one section where I I go from Jane Austen and ballroom dancing to the Hubble space telescope scientist. And (laughs) and how, how do you just go from, you know, 19th century literature to space telescope science? Uh, But you have to read the chapter to see it, but, but it, it flows together. And you're yes. like, oh, okay, I see why that connection is there. So then you go into the next chapter, and Melissa's, and you're making connections there. And then you, the reader, your brain is already primed to be making connections. My essay, I didn't know that fits together. I could see how that fits together. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And that helps you to weave your own narrative through the narratives, and all of the narratives, as I conclude in the last chapter and the afterward, point to Jesus, we we think. I mean, yeah. that that's the the Christian hope that... That all stars, you know, all roads lead to Rome, all stars lead to Christ. Yeah. And that's that's where the conclusion finally is. When the heavens declare the glory of God, uh, Psalm nineteen one 1, uh, or Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens declare to God's righteousness. Um, as Jesus says to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, you know, he walks them through exegetically how the Old Testament, Moses yes. and the prophets are all about him i can only imagine what an exegetical sermon from jesus himself about the psalms would have sounded like amazing but but if you take into what he says in luke 24 there that includes creation in the universe and the heavens and the earth if he starts with moses in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and that discourse on emmaus road was that i'm that guy that's who i am yes and that's what it's all about and colossians one so good by him and for him and through him all things were created
0: I wish we could keep talking about this because it's yeah. so interesting, but we need to move on to the next section because we okay. need to finish up this podcast pretty soon. Got it. And so let me kick it back to you. So now it's your turn. You get to choose. It's, uh, it's editor's pick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One chapter you either want to highlight or you want to explain and, uh, take a few minutes. Yeah. And, uh, talk us through, uh,
1: Okay. I'll be biased. I mean, there's so many choices. I love each of these. I mean, I studied under Michael Ward and I know Sarah Salviander pretty well. So I'm going to go with Sarah's, uh, although I could equally just go with Michael's as well. But Sarah's is chapter six about black holes. And one of the most, uh, I met Sarah on Twitter and we've been Twitter friends for a couple of years ever through this book project. And she's wonderful. She's a fellow Texan, but she came to Jesus through her study of astrophysics. Is that right? Um, she was a Canadian, lived in Canada, was an atheist and embarking upon a, a career in astrophysics. And through her study of primarily black holes, uh, she became a Christian. God used black holes.
0: How interesting. A, I and astrophysics would not have guessed.
1: To, to draw her to Jesus. Amazing. Uh, so Sarah's chapter is really wonderful because it's not just, oh my gosh, black holes, that just sounds too complicated. No, she, she doesn't go into the hard physics. She gives you enough to, if you don't know anything about black holes, she gives you the history of what they are, where they came from. and But what she does is so wonderfully is she, she interweaves the idea of the oddity of black holes to the minds of, of astronomers and of physicists like Sir Arthur Eddington and, and Robert Oppenheimer, who were crunching numbers on black holes mm-hmm. that conceptually their math was telling them that these things should exist. Um, they're very strange, unusual, odd, massive entities that sit at the center of our galaxy, and they're far more massive than than our own sun. Many millions of times more massive than our own sun. They're very enigmatic, strange, and and we can't see them. We can only see the effects of them. They're they're just bizarre. Some people call them monsters, or you know, there's all kinds of things. Yes, but, monsters. But what Sarah does is she she uses she uses black holes as an analogy for all of us, not just atheists, not just Christians, but the idea that we need to overcome uh individual prejudices in order to be able to conceive properly uh, the truth about not only our beliefs but but about the universe that that we have these barriers she outlines four barriers that prevent us from coming to know the truth about reality and uh, you know these scientists that the early scientists that were studying black holes got stuck on one or more of these barriers that sarah talks about and were unable to actually be credited with making the discoveries of these black holes but she talks about the persistence of the scientists who did follow the math, who did follow the clues, as strange and counterintuitive as they may have appeared. Uh, the the reason we have black holes today is because of John Archibald Wheeler or um, Chandra as his last, I don't have the, can't pronounce his full name, but uh, the scientists that persisted in in investigating black holes. And, and of course, they discovered a black hole in the galaxy of M87. It actually photographed as much as we can photographed around the black hole. It's the first ever image of its kind. So we we pretty much know that these things existed. But you know, sixty, seventy years ago, these were just bizarre in the minds of physicists. So Sarah's chapter is not only a history in black holes, but a but a kind of a very intuitive way of looking at our own prejudice. And this is kind mm-hmm. of why I mention pride and prejudice in the opening of my chapter. And Beca- it fits. And it fits and because it fits so well. Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth have to overcome their pride and prejudice to to really have that relationship that we all want them to have. And when you're studying the physical world or when you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, whatever, we have these intellectual prejudices that prevent us from really coming to know the truth. And, of course, you know, the Bible says if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And so you see the marriage there, what I used a literary analogy to sort of give you a preview of what Sarah talks about. So Sarah unpacks what I mean when I referenced Jane Austen in Pride and Prejudice, she brings that out more and more. I and mean, that's how kind of yeah. a little secret about how I wrote the chapter and how it all kind of fits together. But I love her chapter, and in the end, she concludes, very briefly, her testimony is on her website, but uh, she very briefly concludes that this, her study of astrophysics led her to Jesus.
0: Wow, that's amazing. What an incredible story about oh, the power of the yeah. story that God has yeah. written into the stars and then the effect on, on, mm-hmm. on friends, on, on individuals that we know. Yeah. Moving to something that might sound... Less significant But I think Is important <laughs> to the book Sure You mentioned The picture of the Recently discovered Black hole In, mm-hmm. in Sarah's chapter There is a picture Of what looks like a It's an artist's black rendition hole. Is that what that is? I think so But the wider question I wanted I guess not question But comment to point out mm-hmm. uh, Is that this book Has lots of pictures in it Yes In fact my first Backing way up My first impression Of the book When you handed it to me Was that Gee This is heavy yeah and that's I think because of the paperweight mm-hmm. that the publisher chose to use seventy
1: pound paperweight
0: is harvest house mm-hmm. great publisher, and the book, while it's not a tome, it's only two seven two hundred seventy pages yeah. something like that it's mm-hmm. not super fat, but it's very heavy, it's very hefty right because the paper weight is is very heavy, and that's because many many full color Images, graphics, photos. Mm-hmm. It's not a picture book by any means. No, it's not. But it's it is illustrated. There's plenty of illustrations yeah. in it.
1: Terry Glasby, who is in art book uh, in chapter eight, writing about art. Terry's an art historian. He was our. He liked the project so much he wanted to join. How could we say no? Um, so we have an art historian in here. But Terry oversaw the project and made sure the book was visually stunning. I mean, he did a great job. The team at Harvest House did a great job. Terry was gung ho from the start that we had to have beautiful imagery. So Paul and I handpicked some things, uh, our contributors contributed images, uh, and collectively it came together to where the, the, the pages really pop. And what's really interesting about the heaviness of the book, yes. the, the weightiness of the book, is that it, it mirrors the Hebrew word kabod, which means heaviness or weightiness or gravitas if you want to speak Spanish. You know, it's, it's a kind of severity, a solemnity, but it can literally mean weighty or something like that. So so there are Hebrew connotations in just even holding the book. It's fun to hold it. I love holding this thing. It feels good in the hands. <laughs> it does. It does. It, it has a nice And there's feel. a lot to
0: be said for that. Yeah. we were talking earlier about the incarnation problem. Yeah. These days we experience everything through media. Yeah. It's immediate. We're not having personal incarnate on- ontological experiences. No, I, but to tactically touch a book. Oh, yeah. To feel it, to smell it, to yeah. turn the pages, to hold it, I, I just was to a, have an experience with
1: it. Uh, we, we did this at an atheist Christian book club that I attend monthly. Um, and I got a lot of comments from people about the aesthetics of the book, about how it feels and about how it looks. And, you know, I jokingly say, hey, if you don't even agree with anything in it, this is a really cool coffee table book. You can just <laughs> flip through it and enjoy well, the pictures.
0: You know, as much as I'm laughing that the, just of you making light of it, there is a lot that could be said that's really good and substantial and, and weighty, as you say, mm-hmm. for you basically walking the walk. You want to talk about something that is a visual story that the Lord revealed to us yes. his story through what we see in that. in just, we do mm-hmm. talk kind of microscopically for just a moment in the heavens, what we can see, but then to create a visual experience for the reader, which vis- yeah. which reading naturally by its nature is mm-hmm. a visual experience. But then to move beyond that and to move into the aesthetic experience for the reader, you're creating an experience for the reader, yes. something that you are extolling. And raising the value for in the book and in the copy of the text itself. Yeah. So you get some credit for being consistent on that part, too.
1: We, This was so impressive the way sometimes things came together We ne- we didn't even try to coordinate, that we didn't even really think about. Um, we didn't all sit down as contributors and say, "How are you going to tie yours to mine? How okay. am I going to tie yours to mine? How are no, you going to tie yours that to didn't mine?" Happen. Didn't happen. What did happen is I read them all. I Paul and I read them all once, twice, three times over, whatever. Uh-huh. But then I went back and wrote the intro. I said, "Okay, I read all this stuff," and I went back and I wrote a story of the stories. That's that's what I did. But by and large, our other contributors did not talk to each other okay. about how they were going to collab with the essays, and it was so wonderful because you'll see throughout the book referenced. Uh, Psalm 19 referenced. We did not sit down and And plan for everybody to make sure they referenced Psalm 19, (laughs) but that's what happened. Yet
0: somehow that seems to be that that fell together. So So that's our that's That's understandable, and
1: that's why I led with it. And it's the opening line of the book itself, and that is uh, we are focused on God's. I mean, of course, we we mentioned specific revelation with Scripture, but we are focused on uh, the primarily how we can see Christ through general revelation, and this is a this is a wonderful uh, renewing of the mind in how glorious general revelation can be and how helpful it is for us to understand special revelation hand in hand with what God has created.
0: That's so great, Dan. I was about to wrap the episode, but I think you pretty much just did it right there. All right. (laughs) For you listening, I I hope that as to encourage you in your walk with Christ to free you from captivity to naturalistic thinking or cultural thinking, whatever that looks like, one one way is, is just as Dan put, is to worship the Lord in your heart. As you respond to His creation, yeah, First Corinthians,
1: First Corinthians, ten thirty one. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you can read a book to the glory of God. You can make a book to the glory of God. You can experience nature to the glory of God. Worship is not limited to what you do on Sunday, or music, or music,
0: or Sunday morning. So good,
1: you can go out and be a good observer of nature.
0: Such a good point, Dan. That really everything is worship. Everything that is not sin, everything that is God ordained and God made, anything that is a fulfillment of the cultural mandate Mm -hmm. is worship. It brings God... Glory. And so that's right. really what we want for you. So if reading a book can be worship, if making a book can be worship, if buying a book can be worship, Dan, how could they buy this book if they wanted to?
1: Amazon.com, of course. Um, and wherever fine books are sold, half price books, Walmart's carrying it. Uh, Target used to carry it. I don't know if it carries anymore. Christian okay. Book Distributors. It is available on Kindle and paperback, but I would highly recommend uh, the paperback for the aesthetic experience about which Paul and I were talking about.
0: Yeah. And I wholeheartedly agree with that myself. If you have further questions about, things about the stars or anything else astronomically related probe ministries website is just has an abundance of resources that website is probe.org check that out for further questions if you have questions about this podcast there is a contact form feel free to get in touch with me i've been your host today paul rutherford dan thanks for being in studio with me
1: thank you paul for having me
0: it's been a pleasure been a blast to to talk through your new book the story of the cosmos all right and we'll see you next time